Welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast, where powerful women are interviewed every week to share real inspiring stories and incredible insight to help women or anyone break the barriers, be a part of innovation, shatter the glass ceiling, and dominate to the top of their sport, industry, or life's mission. Join us as we celebrate exceptional women and step into our power. And now, here's your host, Angela Gennari. Hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Pretty Powerful Podcast. My name is Angela Gennari, and today I'm here with Victoria Peltier. How are you, Victoria? I'm great. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. I want to introduce Victoria. So Victoria is a 20-plus year corporate executive and board director. Nicknamed the Turnaround Queen by former colleagues and employers, Victoria inspires and empowers her team and clients to change mindsets and drive growth in business, leadership, and culture. As someone who does not subscribe to the status quo, she is always ready for new challenges, becoming one of the youngest chief operating officers at the age of 24 a president by 35, and a CEO by 41. Victoria was recognized as one of the 2023 Women of Influence by South Florida Business Journal, a semifinalist in the 2023 50-50 Women on Boards, Women to Watch, 2022 Top 30 Most Influential Business Leaders in Tech by CIO Look, in 2022, the most influential entrepreneur of the year by World Magazine, 2021's top 50 business leader in technology by Insight Magazine, and a mentor of the year by Women in Communication and Technology in 2020. So this is all super, super, super impressive. And then I also want to mention that you are passionate about DEI, um, which is uh, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you're going to talk with us a little bit today about how you got here in your journey, how you've become so prolific in, in, in what you're doing and, and how your passion has kind of catapulted your career. So let's start um, by talking about um, this nickname, the Turnaround Queen. Really, really interested in that. So let's start there. Sure. Well, thank you. I'm sorry the bio was quite the mouthful. <laughs> it's okay. It's impressive. <laughs> Never apologize for how much you've achieved. <laughs> yeah, um, Turnaround Queen comes as a result probably of the fact that I really like solving like complex, hairy problems. I'm sort of the type that would almost break something just to yeah. put it back together again. And so right. I've done that a lot with businesses. I've signed myself up for or been volunteer teared or told uh, (laughs) to take on some of those challenging projects. And a lot of times that's turning around a distressed business or a a portion of a business. Uh, And a lot of that has come through, I mean, understanding certainly the financials, my career started much more on the operational side, which is where a lot of the cost sits. So learning how to run effective operations, but a lot of that comes down to leadership and culture. And so I've done that a multitude of times and Mm -hmm. also done it through um, merger and acquisition, which often comes with lots of synergies and, you know, bringing things together to make them perform much more effectively, profitably, and ideally with, with growth. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. So you got started in such a young age. I mean, somebody who is, you know, in their twenties getting promoted into a C-level position. So tell me how that started. Well, I started working at age 11. I worked. Wow. hair salon. So I come from like extremely humble beginnings. My, Mm -hmm. you know, I never had to worry about, you know, around food insecurity or not having clothing, but there was not much um, money left over for anything. Never really went on a vacation. So anything I wanted above and beyond that I had to buy. So that um, first job was, as I said, at 11 in a hair salon. And then by 14, I was already the assistant manager of the shoe store I worked at. Uh, and then continued to progress through there. And so when wow. I at 16 graduated high school and went to university, uh, I was working in a bank and got promoted up through the bank extremely quickly. So when I was thinking I was going to go to law school, that was actually my plan from childhood. Uh-huh. Uh, I decided to take a year off uh, before what was I thought was going to be going to law school to continue to work in the bank because I'd been promoted. I loved being a leader and I ended up staying there for almost six years and got recruited out of that organization to become a COO. And it was a massive stretch role. And yeah. I took a huge risk leaving a quote unquote safe job. And by the way, I was a brand new mother. I think my, my, my oldest, um, I think he was maybe only three months old at the time. Oh, yeah. They took a chance on me, um, 
to some extent, but because I ticked a number of boxes. So one, I had financial services experience and many of their clients were in the financial services world. It was, a, it was an outsourcing organization mm. and large scale contact center operations, which is what I'd been running for these, you know, within the banking environment. Uh, I had a long work history, even though I was still quite young. And the other thing I'd say is I showed up incredibly confident. I'm not a fan of fake it till you make it except yes. to confidence. And <laughs> you have those jitters. You just need to show up as confidently as you possibly can. Yeah. So that's how we landed in that role. Well, I love it because um, I think as women and, and it's, there are studies that prove this to be the case that we will underestimate ourselves and not go after those monster opportunities because we will say, you know what? I only met 80% of the qualifications. There's no way they'll consider me. Right. And in fact, I actually have a really close friend of mine who was telling me that she was applying for this job, but she was concerned because, you know, there was one qualification that she did not quite meet. And I thought, I wonder how many people have gone through and made that when they met 20%, 40%, 50% of the qualifications because they were confident in just who they are and their ability to learn on the job, right? And so there's so much that you learn on the job that you'll you'll never be qualified until you actually do it, right? Agreed, agreed. So, and and that, that the data I think you're quoting is, yes, it shows women typically won't apply unless they're like at nine or 10 at a, mm-hmm. the requirements. Men, the yeah. average, six. Wow. Six out of 10. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You know, and that's where that, you know, that, that audacity, you know, the audacity to go and do something that is probably outside of your, um, I wouldn't say comfort zone, but I would say maybe skill set, maybe, um, you know, your environment, but that's how you learn and that's how you grow. And that's how you, you know, you put yourself in positions where you want to be, not necessarily where you've been because that's growth. Exactly. So, okay, very cool. So you take on this COO role and what does that lead to? So how does that transition you for the next next stage of your journey? I That was probably one of the most challenging roles I've ever held in large part because I was learning so much. I yeah. am leading almost exclusively just operations to every function of that organization except for finance reported into me. So I wow. learned a lot technology, HR, marketing, and sales, all of those pieces. Uh, But the outsourcing um, world, people outsource portions of their business or functions in their organization to save money. You know, our mess for less and they pass it off. And Mm -hmm. that environment, if you are not incredibly adept at, you know, learning how to lead business um, effectively, you're going to lose money. The margins are just narrow. So you have to be very good at, uh, and so I learned a lot about how to run a business Mm -hmm. in that environment. And it led to bigger and better of more of those kinds of roles. I'm incredibly values and integrity driven. And sadly, I think I was only there about two years when I discovered that there had been some fraudulent activity with two members of my team Mm. and a client and the co-founder of the organization. I reported oh, wow. the CEO um, and it was his co-founder. And I, I went to him and presented what had been discovered. I terminated the two members of my team, but he was not prepared to address in large part because he couldn't buy out his co-founder. And I said, I, I can't be a part of this. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want my team attached to this, you know, kind of behavior and continuing to work with this individual. And so I left. Uh, but it meant I went on to a much larger competitor of theirs where they had even bigger and better clients. Uh, so in fact, Microsoft, this where a lot of my uh, focus on the technology world came. Microsoft was one of our largest clients doing a lot of th- their tier one and tier tier two tech support for their customers. And um, I, I tra- started to travel the world with them because that was, they had operations and delivery centers in India and other places. And so it taught me a lot about how to lead global teams as well. And then I've really stayed in that space ever since in terms of working B2B professional services in variations of that. So whether it's been leading HR outsourcing teams, whether it's been technology outsourcing teams, consulting on how to lead more effective operations and businesses, M&A activities. Uh, So what I've learned, and this goes a little bit to that last bit in terms of, you know, not thinking you have all the skill set. I've learned how to, where I recognize I might be missing an experience or, or I'll say experience more than skill. Yeah. I've learned how to build the bridge and tell the story over how the experience over here 
will translate and I'll be able to learn and apply that in this new situation. Right. I love it. Okay. So, so you are now learning, basically drinking from a fire hose, I would say in the COO role. And I'm curious to know, you know, when you're leading all these other teams, how did that translate with you being a woman and such a young woman? Did they, did they give you a hard time? Was this a challenge or, or did they innately say she's got this? We, We don't have to worry. Like, tell me what that was like. You know, Angela, I, in that first role, I I didn't have that um, pushback, feedback from anyone on the team. I felt it. Wow. And, you know, I felt the imposter syndrome. Mm. Uh, and so I'm I very fortunate that I hired the right leaders of the other functions um, in, so that we could, you know, deliver really effectively. And we, we all worked well. I showed up in a, I was 20 years younger than any other of the executives. And I was the only woman. Wow. Uh, by the way, you know, part of the LGBT community, I was married to a woman before now being married to my husband. Oh, wow. uh, I, I felt like, okay, well, I'm the only on uh-huh. all fronts. And so I showed up like with kind of this mask that I wore in terms, no one's going to know that I'm vulnerable, that I have fear and insecurity. I'm going to be all business all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't manifest poorly in that situation. I actually think it was in the next sort of hops I made from there. And then I, I got another nickname of turnaround queen, which came later, Iron Maiden. Wow. Really? And that's because I was making really tough business decisions, you know, ensuring mm. our teams were performing and I can make those kind of decisions and have the tough conversations, but I never showed the really soft, vulnerable side of me. Like I'm the type mm. who cries at the humane society commercial. Yeah. I then had to, when I realized I'm like, that's not the kind of leader I want to be. It's not the kind of person I would want to work for. Right. So I, I need to start showing up in a very different way. And, yeah. um, and that came as a result of feeling like, because I'm the only woman, because I'm young, I need to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. Interestingly though, it was um, probably in my then early thirties that still as a very senior executive where I started to get questioned. It was the first time I got real. I'm originally from Canada. First mm-hmm. time I got relocated to the U S and I was, and it was a big acquisition. And I had this woman who through the acquisition became part of my team. And she had been in the industry for 35 years and I mm-hmm. wasn't 35 years old. Oh, wow. Um, you know, at that point. <laughs> and so she kind of challenged me. So it took me a good year of working with her to yeah. be being open and transparent to say like, these are the skills I bring to the table. And Kathy, this is what you have. And this is how we're going to work together. And even then she was a tough New Yorker. It took, like I said, yeah. it took a to kind of get her on my side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious about that because I wonder if that was done out of, you know, women can sometimes be women's worst enemy, right? Like we can, we can hurt each other in the process. And a lot of times it comes from in our own insecurities, right? Or I worked so hard to get here. You have to prove yourself too, you know, but, but at the same time, sometimes it's, I want you to level up to be in a better place. Right. So I just wonder what place that came from, from her. And, and of course we don't know that because we're not speaking with her, but, but I'm just curious about that because I do find that as we're growing through our career journeys, sometimes our, our biggest challenges are other women. And uh, so I would love to see a lot more of supportive environment for, for women bringing up women through the, through their careers. But that's interesting that, that it was the the one person who challenged you the most, most was a, a woman. So, okay. Fascinating. So, um, so then talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, you become president of an organization at 35 and mm-hmm. CEO by, by 41. Are these the same or different organizations? They're different organizations. Okay. I, the longest tenure I've ever had at one organization was uh, approximately six years in that, for okay. that bank I worked for. And ever since then, it's been two, three, three and a half, four years maximum I've worked anywhere else. So each of those have come through different opportunities, president of one travel company. And then I, um, the CEO actually came as a result of an acquisition of a company that I personally made. Wow, that's really cool. So you made the acquisition and then you became CEO of that company. That's outstanding. I love that. 
So, um, okay, cool. So tell me a little bit. Um, so through your journey, I mean, obviously you're the only woman in the room you've, you've mentioned, um, you know, you might be the only one in a an executive leadership team. So tell me about your experience then building out these organizations. Did you make a concerted effort to bring more diversity into the roles that you were hiring for? Yeah, my, I think my focus on DEI came as a result of in, in fact, leading these BPO teams, the mm. like outsourced call center work, it's not generally a destination. Uh, yeah. Like where people say, this is where I want to spend the rest of my, my my life. They go because they are unemployed and need to find a job. Or I often found it was new immigrants into the country who came highly skilled, but were needing to build credentials, you know, in, in that, you know, in the in country. And right recognizing that I needed to try and get them to stay there as long as possible, feel engaged. So therefore they were performing um, and productive meant yeah. I needed to make it, make the environment a place in which they felt a strong sense of inclusion or belonging for them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it came from that and from my experience of feeling like I was the only, so yeah, that's yeah. my focus on me create it like I, I was leading diverse teams, but then finding a, you know, great kind of, you know, culture. And then as I moved into Fortune 500 companies from, you know, that those were some privately held organizations with massive, massive teams. I started to see the shrink in diversity, like they're just the diversity there. Mm -hmm. And so I became extremely involved in how do we create more diversity within our workforce, plus have this like inclusive environment. And to your point around like women, not always being our, you know, greatest supporters, how do I you know, bring people up, you know, as I um, succeed in the organization, how do I rise other people, uh, whether that be women, the LGBT community, BIPOC community. uh, And so that, so it's probably been 20 years that I've been like very focused on, you know, um, Mm DE&I in in companies I work for. And in some cases then being like the executive sponsor at companies like IBM or more recently Accenture, where I was at for certain, certain segments of their um, employee resource groups. Wow. So as you're as you're going through this, and and I agree with you, um, especially the Fortune 500 companies, it's 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 mind blowing, um, especially when you look at the the you know New York Stock Exchange and all the publicly traded companies, how few women are at the executive or board level, and it's shocking. And I think I saw a statistic, uh, I don't know, it was a year or so ago, and they were like, you know, we've reached ten percent of all companies have a woman on their you know board. I'm like, that's or no, it was it was much higher, but it was. Um, but it was like a woman, like they had a woman out of uh, an entire board of directors. And I'm like, that's, that's not an accomplishment. Like when you say 50% of our, because that's what we represent in the population, right? We represent 50%. And so like, I would love to see that there's 50% of women showing up on that level. But I fear that, you know, so many women have to stop at that middle management level. Um, and it's for a variety of reasons. I mean, let's be honest, there's there's a lot of things that we ourselves choose, right? Is that, you know, we we choose to stay at a at a level that's not executive level because of the additional responsibilities and challenges. And, you know, we we have so many other things pulling at our time, you know, with kids and husbands and households and volunteer work. And, you know, there's so much more expected of us as women that, you know, our, you know, we, we find that there's a, a challenge in meeting all the expectations. But so what have you found in all of your work as, as you're moving into these roles? Because you've you've been there. Yeah, it's um, you're right. I, I think it's sad on the the not just boards, but on Fortune 500 CEOs. Uh, you know, there was, you know, a one percent improvement, I think. Yeah. 52 <laughs> or 53 of 500 mm. um, companies have female CEOs. And when you look at people of color, only six. Wow. Two of those were also women, so they counted in in both categories. So, like that is sad. We have to be doing much more. And uh-huh. I use the phrase strategic intentionality. So I, you know, I'm sad to see affirmative action here in the U.S. You know, go away because the reality is, if we think it's just going to happen on its own, it's not because it's the not. needle is not it's not moving, mm-hmm. um, or and certainly not fast enough. The um, I think it was the World Economic Forum did a study around um, pay equity from a gender perspective. And in the U.S., we are still 60, six zero years away from gender pay equity. That's and crazy. in other parts of the world, it's 120 years. So long, long ways wow. to go. 
And so, you know, what I'm seeing is that we have to be much more intentional in, you know, creating programs where, and I, I, I tell companies and clients that I work with that, that you know, there, there doesn't have to be a trade-off for your business performance by doing no. the right, by doing the right thing. Again, you ha- having diversity. Diversity brings innovation, um, you know, and and better problem solving. Um, the engagement that comes by having diverse and inclusive um, environment, the, the data proves it. So mm-hmm. you can have both, but it means that you're going to need to make programs, whether it's formal mentorship programs. You're going to need to look at your talent in a very different way around the propensity for people to learn and bridge the the skill gap that they might have. But to put, you know, diverse, you know, employees in different different roles for sure, and so, you know, for me, that that's a big part of why I'm just I'm like such an advocate and extremely outspoken mm-hmm. uh, around it as well, and calling it out when I see it. I am also a public speaker, and if I'm going to be speaking at conferences or events where I see there, you know, I may might be on a what they call a mantle, you know, yeah, <laughs> like no, we need to have more women represented. Right of color represented as well. And I think a lot of that comes with, I recognize that even though I'm a, a woman that's part of the LGBT community, and um, I still have significant privilege in being a white woman born in North America, and yes. now achieving a certain level um, of power, if you will, just by hierarchical status. But with that, um, you know, comes th- this privilege comes the need for me to do much, much more. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, they say, um, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? And so I feel like as women in leadership, it really is on our shoulders. We we must do something with that, you know? And we have, you know, even though we've fought tooth and nail to get where we are and that we've, we've earned our spot, it doesn't make it any less significant that we have to do our part in in bringing those, the next generation up as well. And there, uh, there's part of your question, Angela, I didn't, I didn't answer, which is just around also what I'm seeing. I, I do agree with you. There's a lot of women who make choices. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, but I, sometimes I'll challenge, I can be a bit controversial. Yeah, no, please, please. Yes. I want you to. Challenging it. So I think, you know, we all have choice. I say, you know, we are the CEO of us uh, and our career. No one's taking care of that for us. And yes. so for, for me, I mean, I took that first C-suite job as a, you know, brand new mother, my mm-hmm. son was only three months old, but I I had support. And so I've chosen not to give up my career. And when my second child was born, I worked the same night I gave birth by choice. She was sleeping. She was sleeping, you know, like yeah, I've been yeah, in yeah. the hospital the same day right. um, and online for a couple of hours. But again, that was, that was my choice. Um, but I, I'm now 47 years old and I, having my children young, I've just become an empty nester. My kids are 23 and 19. Mm-hmm. And but I still have this long career. And if I'd right. taken it, a gap, like I, I just, I would have been so much further behind. However, I did that because I had supportive partners of my career, both in my ex-wife who unfortunately passed away and my husband now have both supported my career. And I've also learned right. to say no to the things that don't bring me personal or professional joy or value. And otherwise I delegate and I outsource. Yeah, That is how I do it all between wife, mother, corporate career, board work, speaking, fitness, friends, right? Like all of yeah, those. Yeah. And so I would challenge your, you know, your listeners and, and women who do typically bear more of the brunt of the household, you know, to, to, to challenge their partners and find alternate ways um, to achieve what they want without having to shelve a career. Right. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with you. And, you know, I've I've stayed single um, after my divorce. And one of the reasons is because it's been, been very, very, very challenging to find a partner who is supportive in that way. And for me, I have, you know, since I've been divorced, I've been divorced for six years. It for me has been um I felt like I had to choose either or, you know, I had to choose, you know, I'm going to put myself out into the dating world and focus on that, or I'm going to focus on, you know, growing my company because I can't take time away from my son. Right. And so like he gets, he gets, um, you know, the majority of, of that time and concentration. And I'm very, very lucky that he's been a great child to, you know, he he's grown up with an entrepreneur mother. So <laughs> he knows the drill. Uh, he's very, very self-sufficient, but, um, but yeah, and that, that was one of the things is like, if you do not have a supportive partner, it is a challenge, but like, I have just, I've had to make some sacrifices and I've had to make some choices, but that those choices were supportive in, in what I felt like was my path. Right. And I'm not going to sacrifice my path, um, 
you know, and so for me, my personal life has been a bit of a sacrifice, but it's okay. You know, the, the right person will come along. <laughs> will be supportive. Well, I had to meet what my day? husband on vacation in the Dominican <laughs> and it was my That's youngest awesome. who found out he was by himself as we were at Chris there at Christmas time and invited him to come in and join us for dinner. So wow, that's you amazing. never know. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so tell me about what you see as the workplace of the future. So, you know, as we're growing and expanding and, you know, we have a lot of the baby boomers are retiring and generation X is kind of stepping into that executive role. Where do you see the next generation going? There, uh, well, you know, I've done a lot of writing and speaking around the future of work. The reality is the future is it's here. It's, it's here. Yeah. And, and it will continue to evolve and change. But what I see is, I mean, technology is going to continue to forever change the way in which we work mm-hmm. um, and, you know, automating a lot of the more routine um, process type work. And so what gets left behind is the more complex problems that we're solving, the relationship building that we need to have with clients. So that that's the the what of the work will shift. I don't think we'll ever go back to post-pandemic into um, fully in the office, um, mm-hmm. obviously for different types of, like if you're in manufacturing, you need to physically be in manufacturing plants, but otherwise for lots of roles, there will be a hybrid environment. I'm not, I'm personally not a fan of like full-time remote for me, but that's not that the work can't be done. I'm just a highly social individual. And right. so I want a hybrid um, opportunity where I can sit and do my Zoom calls all day, but I still want to go and meet and engage people and go and break bread and have coffee or do whatever with, with people. And I think that's what a lot of people want. So employers mm-hmm. are going to need to offer that kind of flexibility in, in a hybrid um, working. But also, as you said, Gen X and the millennials and the Z's that are right behind that want a very different culture and leadership. Um, And they want to feel like their work matters. So as leaders, our role is how do we translate the work that they do into the impact they're having, Mm. not just on the business, but on the customers or the world, depending on on, on the type of work um, uh, or business that that it is. So aligning personal values, goals, and mission um, with the work that they're doing. And then going back to DEI, uh, many, not all, I mean, uh, you know, individuals want to work in that kind of environment, but they also want to work for leaders who are more authentic, who are transparent, um, Mm -hmm. whom they trust. And so it, it's a very different way that, you know, the boomers and older generation were used to leading in this much more dictatorial authoritarian style that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So there's a very different expectation for, you know, the leaders um, yeah. as well going forward. I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, I was similar to you in when I was in my early twenties, I was really suffering from imposter syndrome because I felt like I was taking on a lot and I thought, you know, I'm not qualified, I'm not ready, you know? And so I was similar to you in personality in terms of like having a very, almost a stoic personality, not very warm, you know, and not very authentic, I felt like. And now as a CEO of my company, I am much more authentic. I'm much more vulnerable. And I feel I feel like it's so much more connected, but it's also because I have confidence. I have innate confidence that I think allows me to be vulnerable without feeling like I'm cracking the shell of who I am. Right. And so um, as people become more confident and more comfortable in their own role and their own skin, and I feel like that's the one thing I I feel like some future generations do better than we did is, um, you know, they're they're more vulnerable. And I feel like there's there's a little bit more of that willingness to take risks and, and put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And social media might be a big part of that. You know, they they're putting their whole lives on social media. And, you know, that's still something I'm becoming a little bit comfortable with. I'm still trying to learn that. <laughs> like it's very feels very exposed. But um, but I think that that's that's one thing that they've done. Yeah, I agree. Well, and there's been a big shift to um, a focus on a strong personal brand. Mm-hmm. And your brand is more than what you do for a day job. Yeah. yeah, it, you know, is comprised of who, who are you as an individual? What, you know, what are your interests? What are you passionate about? If you're a leader, who are you as a leader? How do you mm-hmm. show up? And, and, and I'd say the last part of that is like, who, who do you want to be? What do you want to be known for? And so as a result of yeah. that, people are showing more of themselves to show the whole person that shows up versus the, the title that's, you know, of a certain company. 
Yeah. And I think it's a lot more blended now too. Like there's no, there's no such thing anymore as balance necessarily in the way that we used to call it, you know, like there's no, um, you know, before it used to be, if you walk in somebody's office, the only thing you knew about their family were the pictures sitting on their desk. Right. And so you didn't, you didn't know their personal life outside of work. And now you can go on social media and see what they had for lunch yesterday. <laughs> and so it doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly. Well, and actually there's whole teams now and lots, I'll tell you in the B2B companies, I worked for many of them have um, a, a group that just does marketing intelligence on the company. So before they go and meet with a company, huh. I mean, lots of research, here's the annual reports, here's what's on their strategic planning. But for the people they're meeting with, they do a whole bunch. You get packets. Some there wow. have been I've had to tell them, like, I don't need to know how much they paid for their home. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's creepy. That's too much. I do want to know if they have children. Do they play sports? Like, yes, mm. tell me those things so I can connect with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so how can organizations be more mindful about DEI? So about diversity, equity, inclusion, how can we coach our executive teams to say this is why this matters? Well, I think you need to get it in many leaders' heads. And some know this, um, but others don't, where I I where they think that there's this trade-off, as I said earlier, that yeah. exists between like business performance and creating diversity programs. There is not. So, you, so in many cases, it's just education to say, here's the data that shows having diverse, inclusive workplaces mm -hmm. drive the right kind of outcomes that you want and satisfy our shareholders um, and, and our employees, our clients, all of the you know various you know, stakeholders in business. So that's one part of it. The next is working with them and people who have expertise in DEI. So this is why you see chief diversity officers. They don't own it. I want to be clear, although there's a, you know, the, a person in, in many companies that's accountable um, mm -hmm. for diversity. They don't, they don't own it. They're accountable for programs. They're developing the education for others. The reality is we all own it. Right. Um, but you need leaders who know how to measure um, the diversity. And there's a ton of intersectionality. It's just not... It's not gender, it's not race, religion, sexuality, like, and there's interse intersectionality. So how do you report on diversity um, mm -hmm. and targets for it? And then how do you build programs? Uh, and being, as I said, strategically intentional, whether that's um, mentorship programs to help some of these, you know, younger um, employees, you know, gain the skills and access to the people who will potentially promote them you know, later. And then also mm -hmm. being bold in setting targets, you, you know, in terms of where you're going to get to, but be realistic. It's not changing from, you know, 53 female CEOs and to fortune 500 to 50% next right. year, right, but right. we're going to set some, some targets. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you're so right on the um, the data because data speaks volumes. Um, I know I've seen a few reports where women who are CEOs of companies on Wall Street actually bring a higher return on investment to their shareholders. So if you look at that, you know, if you look at women who develop a sense of community in their companies versus that, you know, that that competition of where, you know, you're, you're strictly cost cutting instead of strictly cost cutting. One of our biggest cost factors is you know, employees and engagement. And I think women do that really well. So when I hear that women need to do business like a man, I'm always like, no, we're so good at doing business our way. Like we should right. just keep doing what we're doing yeah. uh, because I think that we're bringing so much value and that it's actually really relevant because you brought up relationships, you know, that relationship building piece of like our future workforce, like that's what we excel at, right? Like that's where we, that's where we hit our mark. And if that's our future, future workforce, then why are there were more women out there leading and developing that culture of relationship building and and relationship based selling and you know how do we how do we create that culture where we're bringing people back to engagement so okay. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about relationship based selling. Um, and so what do you think that that means? Like how does or how do relationships play into um, creating that that strong company atmosphere? Well, I think, um, well, both, I, I think it's important within, um, with employees, but also when we think about relationships with the prospective or current mm -hmm. customers yeah. that we have, it's critically important. At the end of the day, I think we always need to think about as good as a product or service that your company might have to sell. The reality is people do business with people they like yeah. and they trust 
and therefore they want to do business with them. Yeah. And so, and, and much like, so th think about that from an employee perspective. Like if you're going to be asked to work overtime, mm -hmm. coming from someone who you really like and you know, and they're not taking advantage of that, you're you're probably much more willing as the employee to, to do that versus someone who's mean, you don't enjoy them. And you're like, you'll make an excuse. No, I yeah. got it. I can't, I can't do it. Right. So yeah, what I see, and this is where it, um, I've led many, many sales teams who, and, and worked for some of these large companies who are constantly coming up with new offerings to walk out to our clients. And it's like, we'll just go out and like, you, you know, we're going to put pitch this to the client. Like, well, do you even know if they need it? Yeah. Right. So for, for, for me, it's like relationship based selling. So first of all, understand, um, the, there's two great books I'd recommend with the challenger sale and the challenger customer. And okay. one of those books talks about the different buying types and the, you know, people, the prospective customers or clients that you would have and what motivates them and how do you sell to those different types. The other one talks about much more in a B2B environment. Yeah. And the book was written several years ago. And at the time they said, it's an average of 5.3 or 5.4 decision makers for every purchase. Wow. I think first increased since that yeah. book. And so understand it might be procurement who you're dealing with, but the reality yeah. is the actual user of buyer of that is someone who owns the PL within the business. Mm -hmm. And then you've got finance who's got to say, you've got your risk and compliance who might have it. Like you've got all these other people. So understand that mm -hmm. and what matters most to those individuals. So get in and have a convert, build it. I, I try and just build like first meeting for me with a prospective client there. I'm not pitching anything. I yes. actually want to get to know you. Again, I've done some homework as we discussed. There's a digital footprint. I can learn things about you. Right. Um, we're going to build a an actual connection mm -hmm. and hopefully we like one another and we'll go from there. Yeah. But I'm going to try and learn. What's the business strategy? Mm -hmm. What's your personal strategy and goals and objectives? How are you measured? How success look like? How do you get your bonus? Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, if I've got a solution that makes sense, let's assemble the team and come forward with that. Um, and find out what matters and that, you know, to each of those different buying types. So procurement's always going to look for, you know, the lowest price, price uh, <laughs> right. for sure. But like, you know, if you're, it's a delivery person, you're, you're servicing their customers, they're going to service matters. Mm -hmm. and so again, it's, it's very different. And so you, you can't understand that unless you've built these trusted like relationships with people where the, yeah. you, the, the cover comes off and you learn some of those things. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. I mean, even with procurement and I always say procurement can sometimes be our worst enemy because we're never going to be the lowest bid, but if we don't have relationships with our customers, we're not even getting to the table. Right. So if we don't even have that relationship, we want our customers to fight for us at, in the procurement office. You know, we want our customers to say, yes, I know they're not the lowest price, but this is why, you know, we really want them. And so uh, that relationship is everything. And, and I, and, you know, you say people don't buy from, you know, a product they buy from a person. And I say the same thing with, with our employees. I, when we hire new managers, I'm like, just so you know, I can do all the corporate speak that I want and I can talk to all of your employees. But at the end of the day, they're not working for me. They're working for you. Right. And so if you don't have that relationship with them, they're not going to buy in every time you say, Hey, somebody called out today. Can you come in? Right. Like that's not going to resonate with them if you don't have a relationship. So they're going to, they're going to do it because they want to please you, not because they, you know, necessarily want to come in on a day that they're off. Right. So you want to, you want to get that relationship to where they're trusting you that you have, you know, you're, you're invested in them and you're invested in their best interests. So exactly. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more um, about personal branding, because we've talked about personal brand a few times. And I think that that's a subject that I really want to touch on before we end, because there's so much when it comes to a personal brand that we can be doing to elevate ourselves, especially as women, especially as we're competing for these executive roles. You know, how do we build our personal brand and start showing that, hey, we're missing two qualifications, but look what I've got, you know, look, look how I've built my, my brand. The um, people need to think about their personal brand um, as what people are saying about them when you're not in the room. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, we are the CEO of brand us, mm -hmm. uh, you know, CEO of brand you. And so you, uh, what I tell people is you need to control um, the narrative. Yeah. You build that. Uh, and so you need to be really crystal clear on what I'm going to say. I think there's four parts to 
to personal branding and some prongs off of each of those where I see many people get it wrong mm-hmm. is they, they look at the, the first part, which is what's my subject matter expertise. Mm-hmm. This is the function that I know, whether I'm in finance or technology and the industry that I've worked in. Uh, mm-hmm. and, or the company I work for, Hey, I'm a so-and-so at IBM. Well, yeah. that's, okay, that's one part of it. The right. other parts are what, what are your interests and your passions? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what builds connection with people. You mm-hmm. So you're more than the eight hours or 10 or 12 hours a day that you spend at work. You're this whole human being. So what else right. are you interested about? Uh, and then the next is what makes you different? Mm-hmm. So why would people buy from you or choose to work for you versus others, they have choice. Why are you different? And then the last thing is what do you want to be known for? And so I, um, although I will donate whatever's left of my body, um, to science, um, when I pass away and the rest will be, if there's anything left cremated, there's not going to be a tombstone. If there was, it would not talk about the sales revenue and profitability that I have delivered for the companies that I work for. Yeah. I want to be known the legacy I want is around the impact I've had on the people I've worked with and for the communities in the world that I've served and lived in. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. when you look at my brain, it's a combination of all of those things. Yeah. And, um, and that's, you know, I, most of my, um, ro- the, the jobs I've ever had, I've been found by recruiters. Wow. That's so awesome. Really, a really strong brand helps. Yeah. Uh, you know, with that. And now I couple my executive job with doing public speaking as well. And again, I I'm found because I'm known to be a leader on a variety of different topics, which might resonate Mm -hmm. with event organizers. Right. Right. I love that. So, um, yeah, when people are coming for you because of what you've built, you've, you are again, controlling the narrative, like you were saying, that's, that's awesome. I love that. So what challenges and obstacles have you had to overcome in your career? And I'm sure there's plenty, especially because you've had such a great long career, but also so many accomplishments. So, you know, I know what you've achieved. You've achieved some incredible things, but tell me about a few of the obstacles you've overcome. Um, yeah, there have been many. I, I, when I think back on my career, it makes me feel really old, even though <laughs> you're not I'm old. Not, no, I know. I'm not even, <laughs> I'm like, oh. but it's a lot of, a lot of years in the workforce. Um, so obstacles I've had. I shared some. So I think I, I just showed up in a certain way um, because I thought I had to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes security, and you said it too, you're now confident in who, who you were. And so that was an obstacle that I created for myself. And so mm-hmm. I needed I, I needed to overcome that one. There've been uh, others that I've had to overcome, um, you know, in, in business. I've been turnaround queen has come with a lot, a lot of, of challenge. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I had one company I worked for where we did six acquisitions within 18 months. Wow. Uh, and I was the leader of operations across North America. And the majority of the people, um, you know, through the acquisitions were, you know, in you know, my, my accountability. And so needing to do reorganization. And um, in, in this instance, I reported to um, the North American president, it was a global organization uh, who was fearful of taking some of the bold moves. And I had proposed some of the things that we needed to do much more broadly. You know, one of the acquired companies, one of the former leader, like his basketball and golf tickets, like annual tickets, hundreds of thousands of dollars were hitting my PL. I'm like, do, do you think as we're wow. like laying off a significant yeah. portion of our workforce, we should make some, some decisions around those things. I said, I don't want to do death by a thousand cuts. So our team are consistently afraid uh-huh. whether their job. And you know, so that was, that took a quite a bit of time trying to work with him. And, and ultimately I couldn't get him on board. He wasn't the right kind of leader. Um, and so I made a decision to leave the organization. Uh, yeah. And then also I want to share one that a little bit more personal, you know, my, I, I do think we need to make trade-offs at certain time um, in our lives for either career or our families. Yeah. And, um, and I made one, I, I, I was working for American Express. I'd only been there maybe 18 months when my my ex passed away. We were divorced. We had mm-hmm. shared custody of our children. And I traveled like 80, 90% of the time. Wow. Uh, my role was based in New York, but my I had a home with my ex-wife uh, and my children were in Toronto and I would go back and forth. 
And when she passed away and I was single and had no, uh, no family, um, I needed to make a decision. Do I move my children to New York where they leave? They've already lost a parent. They leave everything else behind that they know wow. uh, to come to New York. And that didn't solve for my, all my travel issues, a small portion of it. Yeah. Um, or do I have to find a different job that has significantly left less travel? Yeah. And so in this instance, I made the decision for my family, for my children, which is the right yeah, decision. It was the right decision. After 18 months to leave a job, I ended up moving back to, to Canada at that point for a role that had maybe 10% travel. I came for, I was running a $4 billion P and L to yeah. 250 million. Like it wasn't nearly as challenging of a role for me, but it had me home. It had yeah. me with my kids at a time when they needed me most. Yeah. It was the right decision at the right time. Yeah. 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 Wow. So yeah, that's, that's definitely, well, it speaks to your character also, right? Because um, the, as a woman, we, we, we have expectations of, you know, we have to be there for our children, right? Like that, that is just, it's a, it's a, you know, we, we want to excel in our career, but at the same time, children are, you know, that that's, it's such a, it's a no-go, right? Like we, we can't choose to not be there. So you definitely made the right choice at the right time. So kudos to you for that. Um uh, so who inspires you? Oh, who inspires me? Um, in business, sadly, there's a lot of people I look to that yeah. prov- are, are the, no, the opposite. They're like, they're, I, I don't look towards them as mentors. In fact, they're, I've take I've learned from them because I want to be nothing like them. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, different. I so, like it. So I've learned a lot in that regards. Although there's there's people who inspire me, um, you know, the Obamas, for example, Um, although I'm a proud Canadian with, as a resident in the (laughs) West, like I, I, not a U.S. citizen yet, so I can't even vote. Um, but the work that they've done has inspired me. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, former, um, or, um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, you know, would be one too. When I look at people who speak in the language, in the way I think of, whether it's Simon Sinek, um, Adam Grant, you know, industrial psychologist and some of what, what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. love that, um, kind of work. And by the way, for any, um, not that I want to send your listeners to another podcast, but yeah, yeah. one between Brene Brown with Adam Grant and Simon Sinek all in one. It's oh, a that's two awesome. part one. That one, that one's pretty fun. Pretty fantastic. That's awesome. I love yeah. it. Okay. So yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of CEOs that uh, I don't do business with. I won't do, do business with their company just because of who they have in their leadership role. So uh, yeah, I, I am very much, um, I, I judge people by their CEO very quickly. <laughs> so they either have character, or they do not have character. So, um, okay. So as women, we give our power away all the time. So you've been in a lot of powerful roles um, through your career. So can you tell me about a time that you gave your power away and then another time that you've stepped into your power? And, and what did that, what was the difference between those two? Um, I'm going to struggle with the time I gave my power away yeah. uh, because I'm very reticent to do it recently. I'm, um, so I made the decision to leave Accenture and I'm just currently interviewing for my next C-suite role. And one of the CEOs of the companies that, um, I'm, you know, potentially considering, um, was, uh, asking around about about me. Um, he had, has some like shared, he worked at one of the companies I worked for and it. So I found this out and the recruiter came back and said, um, he was told that you are driven and feisty. Oh, Uh, (laughs) and the recruiter said to me, I don't know whomever told him that meant it in a negative, although the CEO loves it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm rare. Do I, do I give up, um, power, but rather I've learned when I need to temper, um, my, opinion, um, and, and drive. I'm, I'm, I'm quite outspoken. I'm radically candid. And so I, it's more like I've, I've learned, I know that's my personality. Yeah. So at times it will not work well. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. It's more more on that as it relates to, um, giving up power. Um, and and the other one would just be the example where I made the decision to change jobs for my children. I gave out some power uh, for the right, you know, right reasons. And then stepping into it, I feel like I do that, um, you know, quite frequently, but there's a, a really good example of that for me was a, you know, organization I worked for, um, and I'm trying, I will not name names, but like I, <laughs> I could see some really toxic behaviors and had significant impact in our organization. And I knew that we were embarking upon a reorganization within this very, very large company. Mm-hmm. And so I remember going to our, like 
our, our head of HR, our head of strategy and my global leader and saying like, guys, all literally all men, um, I, I like a lot of the work I do is working with our customers on how to transform their businesses, their culture, looking at ways of working in a very different way. Can I help? Yeah. How can I take the work that I do on behalf of our clients and leading these large teams with, you know, great results internally um, to help us. Mm. Uh, and um, they all were like, oh, that'd be great to, you know, get me involved in. So they, they did, none of them took me up on it and I continued to sort of push it, but it was not a healthy environment. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was me stepping into my power, but trying to do much good with what I thought I could, but then ultimately they weren't prepared to take some of those actions. So six months later, I quit. Yeah. Well, good for you. Good for you for recognizing that and, and, uh, knowing it's not the good, not a good place. Um, so one last question for you, and I've just, I've learned so much and I think that you have, um, so, so, so many great things to offer to our audience. So thank you for that. Um, but what do you wish more people knew? Probably some of the things we've talked about, like that doing the, the right thing, um, you know, brings the kind of results we want, whether it's personally or professionally. Yeah. Uh, and part of right thing, I think is also at, to an individual level that around authenticity, Yeah. Uh, you know, as we talked about breeds, trust and relationships. And, and so that really matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That trust. I agree because there's so much to, not know, especially in a hybrid work environment and with all the social media out there, what's fake, what's real, you know, who are people, are they who they are on, on screen, you know, on social media, or are they who they, who they are in front of you, you know, and so it's hard to decipher, but I agree, bringing your authentic self is, um, yeah, that's, that's magic sometimes just in community, you know, creating that connection, so well, thank you, Victoria. I have really enjoyed our conversation. This has been really enlightening, and um, I hope everyone takes to heart the the DEI um, things that we've talked about because I think that there's just so much relevance to it and what we're doing and how we're promoting women through the workforce. So, thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, this has been another episode of the Pretty Powerful Podcast. If you go to prettypowerfulpodcast.com, you will be able to see all of Victoria's information and you can connect with her there. And how else can they find you? So I have a personal website, which is victoria-peltier.com and they can choose to link out and connect with me on whatever their other chosen social media platform is. Awesome. I appreciate it. Well, thank you guys so much again. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on another episode. Have a great day. Thank you for joining our guests on the Pretty Powerful Podcast. And we hope you've gained new insight and learned from exceptional women. Remember to subscribe or check out this and all episodes on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Visit us next time. And until then, step into your own power.